0: All right, so go Deeks, forty thirty two. So you're checking the score already, Preston? No, it's transition transition time. I get, I get how it is. Um, Welcome to RUF. If this is your first time here, we're really glad that you're here with us. My name's John Bourgeois, and I'm the campus minister here with Wake, here with RUF at Wake. Um, And at RUF, we want to be a place that exists for both the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever. RUF exists for those who think that Jesus feels awkward, kind of like middle school, and also those who think that Jesus is really comfortable, kind of like a, a good friend. Um, I just want to say that RUF isn't for one kind of person. It's for every kind of person. And we want to be a place where anyone can come from, any scene on campus, from any background, um, where you can come no matter where you are in relation to Christianity or to Jesus um, And so, in other words, just to say, um, whoever you are, wherever you come from, we're really glad you're here. And if this is your first time or you brought a friend with you this week, thanks. Um, We're really glad that you're here with us um, tonight. So, um, last week, I said that I thought we're getting 18 inches of snow, and I was wrong um, so sorry for the false prediction of 18 inches of snow. We got four inches of ice and I was the most disappointed. Well, probably my son, Leo was m- more disappointed than I was, but, um, still got some sledding in a little bit this weekend. Um, in the beginning of this week, I watched this little video called inside out the outside edition who here has, who here's seen inside out. Okay. For those of you who haven't seen inside out. There's going to be some spoilers. I'm sorry. You need to go see the movie. Um, so, the outside of it, so the movie, for those of you unfamiliar, Inside Out is the story of a little girl moving from Minnesota to San Francisco. But the story is told from inside her head. And there are four characters that kind of sit at the control panels of her life. And they're her emotions. So, there's joy, and there's what's Sadness's name? Is it Sadness? Sadness, and there's anger, and. Fear and disgust. Is that what it is? Fear. So joy, sadness, fear, anger, and disgust. Five emotions. Thanks, guys. There's five. And so the the drama of the movie is these emotions working it out. And so the majority of the movie actually takes place in this imaginary world of her emotions. So Inside Out, the outside edition, is the movie with just the action of the characters. And so all that inside stuff is removed. It's only 15 minutes long. Um... It's tremendously sad, and it takes place over 48 hours. I didn't realize the movie only took place over 48 hours. And so the if you're unfamiliar with the movie, it's the story of a girl. Um, I saw the movie, and I still was unfamiliar with the plot line because so much of it's inside the head. So it's a girl whose family, dad gets a job in San Francisco. She's raised in Minnesota. They move cross-country to San Francisco, and she just experiences this great loss, sort of the loss of growing up, of becoming a, a middle school age girl and the loss of her childhood but also the loss of moving to a place and losing her friends um and the um there's a couple parts of dialogue in this that i found really fascinating there's this one scene where the mother says to riley the girl um after the transition of the move she says thank you in all this confusion you've you've stayed our happy girl and then there's this scene where she's pouting at the dinner table, and, the, and her dad yells at her. And she goes up to her room, and dad comes in, and he says, come on, where's my happy girl? And then um, the big turning point in the movie, I'm really giving away if you haven't seen it. This, the, I feel like the, the time has elapsed, so it's okay, I can give the spoiler. Um, so she, she ends up running away from home. She steals her mom's credit card. She goes to the bus stop, buys a bus bus fare to Minnesota, and she's on the bus leaving San Francisco. She yells, stop to the bus driver. She gets out. She runs home. She runs into her parents' arms crying. um, And she says this. She says, I know you don't want me to, but I miss home. I miss Minnesota. You need me me to be happy. Please don't be mad. She says, you need me to be happy. I know that you need me to be happy. Please don't be mad. Have you ever felt this? Um, Like, why do we do this? Why do we have this, this feeling like we need to be happy? And there's this expectation from from our friends or from our family from the world that we're supposed to be happy I think I think what it is is that deep down we know that we're designed for joy and when we experience sadness we don't know what to do with it because that actually threatens our joy Um, so tonight I want us to to think about these ideas and answer this question how do we make sense of our longing for joy in the midst of the sadness like the real sadness of our lives um, and we're going to do this through reading Psalm 126. Um, we've been reading through uh, this, this section of Psalms called the Songs of Ascent together this semester. And this is printed on the backside of your bulletin. Um, so I'm going to read this. This is Psalm 126, A Song of Ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for tonight. Um, We thank you that you are with us by your spirit, and we pray now that you would help us to um, understand your word, that you would speak to us, and um, Lord, that we would see Jesus in this. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, So my outline for tonight, which is on the back of the bulletin as well, is we're going to talk about the location of joy, the problem of sadness, and finally, the provision of joy. So in an article written by a guy named Scott Thibodeau called Joy Has Fallen on Hard Times, he writes this. He says, most of us who are adults have been around long enough to know that the American dream is just that. It's a dream. It's a dream that has delivered momentary pleasure that doesn't last. Its lack of permanence seems to stem from the fact that the sharp needle of reality perpetually pops this dream with our lived frustrations and disappointments and hardships and longings and laments. Even the richest, most famous, and most powerful of us find lasting joy remarkably elusive. Mark Twain in this this vein wrote, fame is a vapor, popularity is an accident, and the only earthly certainty is oblivion. And the result is that even though we long for joy, many of us don't believe that a joy-filled life is possible. Um, Henry Nowen, who is a Catholic priest, wrote that many people have more or less accepted life as a prison and are grateful for every occasion that creates the illusion of the opposite. I'll say that again. Many people have more or less accepted life as a prison and are grateful for every occasion that creates the illusion of the opposite. And this acceptance has led to a split in many of us. Um, so we offer the world this illusion. Our, our public face has the smile lines of joy. But privately, many of us are lonely and suffering. And we're perpetually distracting ourselves from our own plight. Maybe you know someone for whom this is true. Uh, maybe this is true for you. Um, the distance between the face that you present to the world and the private prison you secretly indwell has become so great... That you don't believe they could ever reunite. And frankly, you spend so much time distracting yourself from this that you can't even begin to imagine what a reunion would look like. More or less what true joy would look like. And yet, we still know, right? We still have this uncanny sense that we're made for joy. That we're supposed to feel joy. So, so where is that joy located? In December, um, I went and saw the new Rocky movie in the theaters, um, Creed. I I love Rocky movies, um, and uh, the mantra of that movie is, if I'm going to get joy, I'm going to produce it. It's going to come from inside of me. So the movie follows the story um, of Adonis Creed, who's the son of Apollo Creed. If you're familiar with the Rocky uh, universe, Apollo Creed was Rocky's good friend, um, and this, he's the greatest boxer of all time, and so Adonis Creed is is working to produce his own joy. And this story is not unfamiliar to us. Right? Hollywood has gotten so good at telling us good stories, and so we just jump from narrative to narrative, getting brought inside of these stories and believing that we can then produce our own joy. I left that movie thinking, seriously, this is what I was thinking, that I should join a boxing gym. And that I know I won't be a world-class boxer, but maybe... I would have joy if I looked like that with my shirt off, at least, right? I don't look like that with my shirt off. Um, and I wish I could say that this is the only movie in which this has happened to me, but this happens every time I go to the movies. I don't know if this happens to you all. Um, this is what I thought of the movies I've gone to in the past year. See if you can see what movies I've been to. All right, I will have joy if I join a marauding car gang in a post-apocalyptic wasteland in order to save the world from a corrupt paternalistic tyrant. I will have joy if I join a college a cappella group. I will have joy if I go to Mars, get left behind, survive on my own, and return to Earth and become a NASA professor. Um, right? I'm only sort of kidding about this because these are, these are all stories, and what we do with stories is we place ourselves inside of them. We do this with the movies. We do this with the American Dream. We do this with all sorts of things. Right? We, we put ourselves in the driver's seat and say, I will have joy if I do X. We do this all, this all the time. And it's this insidious lie that if I'm going to experience joy, I've got to produce it. Um, the joy that I long for must come from inside of me. But real joy is not something that we manufacture. Real joy is a response to God doing great things for us. Look at verses 1 through 3 with me. Verse 1, the song is saying that there's something about when God acts in history... When he intervenes in our lives, that it is so good, it's as if we were dreaming. Um, He says, we we were like those who dream. You know, pinch me, I'm dreaming. That's sort of like, it's so good, it's this we're dreaming. Verse 2, in the response to God working, specifically the Lord restoring the fortunes of Zion, which means he's restoring the fortunes of his people. The response is a mouth filled with laughter and a tongue filled with shouts of joy. And then verse 3, joy is a response to God doing great things for us. So why were they so full of joy? What was the good news of joy that came to them from God? Well, the Bible tells us a story. And the story of the Bible is that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existed in perfect joy before the beginning of time. And joy, simply put, joy is... Um, The response to being in God's presence. So God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit desired for this joy to expand and increase. And so God created the universe and he created everything in it. Um, We just sang this with joyful, joyful, we adore thee. All thy works of joy surround thee. Earth and heaven reflect thy rays. Stars and angels sing. Around the center of unbroken praise. Field and forest, vale and mountain, flowery meadow, flashing sea, singing bird and flowing fountain, call us to rejoice in Thee. God created all things out of His joy, and at the pinnacle of His creation, He made us, humans, in His image. And He created us to be in His presence so that we might participate in His joy. But rather than rejoicing in the love of our God, our first, point, our first parents believed a lie, and they sought joy away from and apart from God. And the Bible calls this sin, and their sin is our sin. That again and again, when we're given the opportunity to rejoice in God and find our joy in him alone, we are so quick to seek joy in other places. And the Bible and human history together tell the story of humans seeking to establish their joy somewhere other than God. And then the Bible and human history tell of the disastrous effects of this. But the Bible also tells the story of God pursuing and chasing after his people that he might restore their joy in himself. That the God of the Bible is a God of restoration. And there are three places in the Bible that are littered with joy. Do you all know what these are? The first is the Psalms. Um, The Psalms, you see joy as this response to the salvation that is found in God alone. And that's the the joy that we have in our psalm, Psalm 126 tonight. Um, The second place that is littered with joy is Isaiah. Um, And the joy in Isaiah is a future joy. Looking forward to the future promise of salvation that God is going to bring through his suffering servant. And the third place that is filled with joy is Jesus. Because it's in Jesus that God has accomplished this promise of salvation. And it's in Jesus that he has restored the fortunes of Zion. And we see this especially in his resurrection from the dead. Because the the whole back end of the Bible just explodes with joy in response to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. True joy is found in Jesus. And Psalm 126 finds itself longing after that joy. The joy that comes in Jesus. And so here we are tonight. Here we are 2,000 years after Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And we're still longing for joy, right? I'm saying this to you and you still, you're like, we're still longing for it. So why, why do we still experience sadness? Why do we still experience sadness? Implicit in this psalm is the problem of sadness. So what is sadness? Sadness is caused by sin. My sin against God and others... Others sin against God and against me and the effects of sin on the whole creation. We're sad and we grieve because we live in a broken and breaking world. And because things just aren't the way that they're supposed to be. And verse 4 through 6 in this psalm is a cry to God for him to do again what he has done in the past. Verse 1, God restored the fortunes of his people in the past. Verse 4, it's a plea for God to do it again. And implicit of this is that there's a period of time where there has been great sadness. And most of us in this room know sadness in some form or another. And if, if you don't think that you've experienced sadness, um, it might be because you're not letting yourself experience it. Some of you know my story, um, at least parts of my story. Uh, the fall of my senior year of college, I went to Tulane University. In the fall of my senior year of college, Hurricane Katrina hit. This is the fall of 2005. Um, and this totally flipped my life upside down. School shut down. Um, I went home to Virginia, and I rolled in UVA for the semester. Um, and up until this point, I had lived a very privileged life. Um, the way I would have said it back then is I had a nice family, a nice house, nice, ca- nice cars. The good had outweighed the bad, you know, at least on the surface. Um, I was always ta- always told to count my blessings growing up. And this would become my mantra. When things got bad, I would count my blessings because there are always others who have stuff worse. And this appears to make sense. And because this was hammered into my head, I didn't think I was allowed to grieve because I had it so good. The little bad things that happen aren't really that bad. So I'm not supposed to feel sadness for them. I'm supposed to just buck up and suck it up. Um, and so I was reading through old journals of mine uh, this week, and I found something that I'd written in December of 2005 that I actually shared with a group of people similar to this. Um, I want to read some of this from you, just what God did in my sadness that fall. This is what I wrote in 10 years ago in December. After the levees broke in New Orleans, I realized that I was not going to be going to school at Tulane this fall, and the fact that my apartment was under three feet of water wasn't even an issue yet. My drive home from south Louisiana to Charlottesville was long, I ran out of gas in Jackson, Mississippi, was stuck at a gasless gas station until someone heard about a gas station that had gotten power back on. This is five days after Katrina. So I sped over there, got in line for gas, got gas, um, and then I ran out of gas again when I got to Memphis. Unable to find any, I was able to stay the night with a relative. We found gas the next morning, and I made the 13 hour drive from Memphis to Charlottesville that Friday. And the whole way home, I had to distract myself from my emotions. Music, NPR, whatever I could do to take my mind off my loss in New Orleans. My phone bill was over $250 that month. I refused to let myself emotionally break down while on the road because at that point I didn't believe that I had the luxury of emotions. And I never really grieved the situation. So in early October, my two-lane roommates um, who were studying at LSU that semester went back to New Orleans and got out all the salvageable stuff from our apartment. And they sent me a box with what they got from my room, so you can imagine everything I owned. I just assumed I'd be get this big box of everything I owned, and all that was in it was like two sweaters, my journals, a Bible, and a few pictures. Lost in the flood was everything else. Um, had my grandfather's college chair; he graduated from Tulane in the '30s. So that was lost. Um, all of my clothing and books. You know, at this point, in my life as a as a twenty one year old, everything that I owned was lost. Um, everything that made up who I was or who I thought I was, was gone, but I didn't let myself, let myself grieve. You know, I counted my blessings. So many other people lost so much more. I told myself, I have friends that no longer had homes, friends whose families had lost everything. Now I honestly didn't have that much. So I counted my blessings and moved on, but slowly that fall, my life began to unravel everything that I felt I had a grasp on started to slip through my fingers And this really started to scare me. And then one day in October, it all fell apart. Everything was dissolving. I felt that I couldn't control anything, and I was trying so desperately to hold everything together. I tried counting my blessings, but honestly, I could care less about them anymore. They were dirt compared to how I was feeling. I remember on that Tuesday in October, I went for a run. And when I got back from the jog, I ran suicides until I couldn't anymore. I had this desire to absolutely destroy all the strength that I had, and when I was done, I was wrecked. So the next day, I met with my pastor, and I got up the courage to tell him how I'd been feeling about my breakdown the day before. And I expected to hear him say, Wow, John, that's really really tough. I'll pray for you. But instead, he said, Good, I want you lower. I said, What? You know, this totally caught me off guard. Um, You want me lower? Can't you see that my life sucks right now? And you want it to be worse? And then he explained... He said, John, we need to grieve. We need to feel sorrow because that's where Christ meets us. I don't need to hide my sorrows as small as I think they are because Christ knows that they are real and he is there with me in them. It's only after I grieve and I rip open the wounds of my heart that I'll have something to be thankful for. Christ's redemption. So have you all experienced this? Have you experienced this, this need to feel like you need to count your blessings in the midst of sadness? Um, in, in Inside Out, Riley does it, you know, she says, um, I know you need me to be happy. Please don't be mad. And this, you know, this is the culture that we live in. Um, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, wrote a book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And he writes this in it. He says, in our secular culture, suffering is never seen as a meaningful part of life, but only as an interruption. With that understanding, there are only two things to do when suffering occurs. The first is to manage and lessen the pain, and the second is to look for the cause of the pain and eliminate it. Philosopher Charles Taylor um, wrote this. He said, Western society's highest goal is preventing suffering. And, you all know, Wake is a great example of this. Um, Wake is a place where it's not okay to not be okay. You all are implicitly told that if you are sad or you are suffering or grieving or anything other than fine, you know, fine's an acronym for um, freaked out, insecure, neurotic, emotional. So if you're anything other than fine, um, you just need to leave your sadness at home, right? You're, you're not, no one says this explicitly here, but it's implicit. Um, wake seems to only have room for two types of people, either people who are really happy or cynical. Um, at least that's been my observation since I've been here. But the good news of God's grace for us in Christ is that it's okay to not be okay, And we want that to be true of RUF. We want RUF to be a place where it's okay for you to not be okay. It's okay for me to not be okay. Um, For you to honestly unload the things that are weighing you down. The things that are leading you to cry out to God, restore our fortunes. Whether that's a cry, that cry is a shout or whether that cry is a whisper. And this psalm is saying that somehow our sadness is in fact connected to our joy. That somehow we actually need our sadness we actually need one another's sadness we need to engage with the real sadness of our lives to access the joy that is offered to us in Jesus and the reason that we need our sadness to access God's joy is because the joy that Jesus brings only comes through sadness the joy of the resurrection is only po- is only possible through the sorrows of the cross so how do we get this joy um, this psalm ends with two pictures of God's provision of the joy. Look at verse 4. The first is the Negev. The Negev is the, south, the southern part of Israel, which was a vast desert. And the waterways in the Negev were this network of ditches that were cut in the soil by wind and rain erosion. And so most of the year they were baked dry under the sun. But a sudden, a sudden rain would make the desert explode in, in wildflowers. And this still happens today, that in the rainy season, the um, the deserts of Israel will explode in wildflowers. One pastor says this. He says, our lives are like that, drought-stricken. And then suddenly the long years of barren waiting are interrupted by God's invasion of grace. So the psalmist is looking over the dry desert of Israel, knowing the abundance of color that springs up with a good rain. And he's saying, that's how I feel. Restore us to that. The second picture is in verse 5 and 6. If you'll look at that with me, he says, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. And the image is a farmer going out to sow his his seeds and um, and he's weeping. Um, But then with the harvest time, with the abundance of the crops coming in, he he brings the crops in with joy. So the question for us tonight is: How do we sow our tears? How do we sow in tears? The simple, a simple answer for us is that we engage with our sadness. And this is really scary. Um, the reason we disengage from our sadness, uh, at least the reason I disengage from my sadness, is that I don't know what to do with it. Um, so we push it aside. Either you're like me in Hurricane Katrina, and you keep telling yourself that your suffering isn't that bad, and you just need to count your blessings. Or you're terrified that if you engage with your sadness, the real sadness in your life, it will actually destroy you. And here's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus cares deeply about your sadness. And when you submit your sadness to him, it will not destroy you. But instead, he will transform it into joy. William Temple, who is a 20th century bishop in the Church of England, writes this. He says, it is not only that joy will take the place of sorrow, but that sorrow itself becomes the joy. The cross is not for Christians a stumbling block, which the resurrection has removed. It is not a defeat of which the, subs, which the effect has been canceled by a victory. itself. It is itself the triumph. What was the devil's worst has become God's best. So let me ask you this. Just think about this. Um, what is the sadness that you are scared to give to Jesus? What is the sadness that you're scared to share with this community or with your friends um, here at Wick? What has happened to your family that drives you to tears? What have you done that you think is beyond the reach of God's forgiveness? Or what has been done to you that you think is beyond the reach of God's healing touch? Where in your life is God leading you to cry out, Restore our fortunes, O oh Lord? This phrase, uh, restore our fortunes, occurs twice in this passage, and it shows up all over the Old Testament. And everywhere but here, it is used um, in God's voice of, of celebrating either what God has done or God speaking and promising what he will do in the future. But here, it's a cry from God's people that he would keep his promises, that he would restore the fortunes of his people. And this is most explicit. Um, This idea of restoring the fortunes is most explicit in Jeremiah 33. I'm going to read this quickly for you all. It's Jeremiah 33, 7 through 9. God says, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And they shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth, who shall hear of the good that I do for them. Did you hear that? God promises restoration. He promises cleansing, He promises forgiveness of sin, and he says that we will be the joy and glory to God before the world. This is verse two, that um, the world will see our joy and give glory to God. So a question for y'all is if, if you call yourself a Christian, you must ask yourself this: Do I have joy? And do my friends know that it comes from God? To say all this another way, um, God is so committed to your joy that he is bounded up in his own. Knowing that his children were lost in the sadness of their sin, God knew that the only way that you could have the joy of communion with him is if he bore the full weight and crushing destruction of your sin and sadness. And so we have the cross where Jesus Was crushed. The man of sorrows was oppressed and afflicted. On him God laid all of our sin, so that in the resurrection we might participate in the fullness of his joy. Hebrews 12 says it this way He says, Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Look to Jesus, who has borne your sadness and your sin so that you might have his joy. Do you want this joy? Do you want this joy? Give him your sadness. Sow your tears, and you will reap with shouts of joy. For the Lord has done great things for us. Let's be glad. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are the God of all joy, and um, Lord, we confess that uh, we don't know what to do with the sadness of our lives, that we lack, um, we lack the tools to, um, to engage with sadness, to make sense of it. Lord, we thank you that in your gospel you have given us a clear lens to see this world, that Jesus, in your death and in your resurrection, you tie together both the saddest and most joyful events in human history. And we pray that you would help us to submit our sadness to you, um, that we might receive your joy. And we pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.